The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. We're underway at the Glenn Show. Glenn Lowry here at Brown University. I'm with John McWhorter, Columbia University and the New York Times. I am John Paulson Fellow, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show. Every other week, John McWhorter and I converse, and this is one of those times. Hey, John. My apologies. My apologies to you, John, and to the audience that I am not at my normal workstation where I have a very high-quality microphone uh, and a really good camera. Instead, I'm with my laptop in my dining room because, well, there's a computer problem up there, and we're going to get it worked out. But John's time being what it is, we don't want to waste John's time. So (laughs) I'm improvising. It's Sunday. So, yeah. I did actually lay down a Lexicon Valley podcast episode this morning. And so I'm doing the two podcasts today in one day. And then oh, you too. I want to do applesauce with my girls later. So it's going to be a Sunday kind of day. You have the girls? Yeah. And we bought some apples and we're going to make applesauce. You're going to make that. applesauce. That's cute, man. That's really. And it's good. Because apples aren't that good, but applesauce is. So it's a way to get your apples eaten. Let me observe that you're somewhat in the side of your frame. Uh, the left side, right. you, could be, you could be a little bit more center. Well, I remember those days when my kids were kids. Uh, they're in their 50s, some of them now. <laughs> uh, and, you know, doing things like uh, in the autumn, going to, you know, pick apples and uh, do stuff with them. You know, here's a very sweet talk about kids growing up. There is um, in my neighborhood, there is a black woman who, you know, I got apples at the farmer's market. Go to the farmer's market. You see people in the neighborhood. And many years ago, she was walking toward me and um, me and the girls, actually. And all I know is she was on the phone and she's walking toward me. I had seen her before, but she's walking toward me. And she sees me. She does a hairpin turn. She's got a kind of a conspiratorial smile on her face, and she walks in the other direction. And the thing is, she was walking towards the farmer's market. There was no reason to do the hairpin turn. There's no way that was spontaneous. What she was doing was she saw me. She knew who I was. And she, what she was doing was she told the friend, oh, my God, that was John McWhorter. And she didn't want to do it in my face. And so she did the turnaround so that I wouldn't see it. But it was painfully obvious. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You were, in other words, you were so notorious or such a disgusting figure that people would, when seeing you in public, reverse course and run away in a horror? Not running away. But what she was doing was she wanted to say, oh, my God, I just saw John McWhorter. And, you know, it wouldn't be an approval. And so she turned so that when we did not, we wouldn't cross each other with me hearing her saying that. Like she was some yards away and the hairpin was clearly so that I wouldn't hear what she was going to say. I say this because that was many years ago, but I can tell that she's somebody who's not a fan. She, she, there's some other things about her. Fine. But she, um, my daughters and I happened to mention her today because I used to run into her past her so often that I used to say it almost seems like on purpose that we always are at the farmer's market at the same time. And, you know, Dahlia, she's 11. And it's not that I've ever instructed her in these things, but she picked up herself on. She said, that lady is probably saying, how come your kids are clearly from a white woman? You are not. You, how come you're leaving the culture? Eleven. She's picked up on that. I have never heard her mention anything like that. But she's old oh enough goodness. now that she actually can sense things like that. I didn't tell her anything like that, but she said she probably she thinks you're leaving the culture. So kids internalize things. Isn't that interesting? Well, what did you say to her in response? You know what I told her? I said, you know what? There are people who think that way. 
And that really may be what that woman is thinking. I gave her the real thing. Because to, to be honest, I would bet most of my bank account that that is what that woman thinks of me. And, you know, that's life. I think that's, you know, I've dealt with that my whole mature life. I, I get where she's coming from. But, oh, yeah, she's, she's a McWhorter hater. And part of it would well be he's, he, he likes white women. So well, yeah, there will always be, be people like that. <laughs> I can assure you of that with a lot of sisters. That's going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's an old story. It strikes yeah. me that, you know, there's a market out there for your book, your Kindy-esque, your Kindy-esque book, How to Raise a Mixed-Race Baby. <laughs> Anti, anti-racist baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's got how to do an anti-racist child, how to do an anti-racist baby. It's a whole industry. He's got a storybook that he's adapting from Zora Neale Hurston. Did you know that? I did know that. Yeah. He's branching out, man. He's branching out. See, the brother's got... Actually, no, no, he isn't. He's, he's not going to branch out, but all power to him. But, yeah, there's a market out there, that's for sure. Yeah, it must be nice. You know, anything that he puts out is guaranteed. Imagine how it would feel. Anything you put out is guaranteed to be a blockbuster bestseller. You can't sneeze at that. Well, one thing that is is that's money in the bank. That's that's cachet, cachet. <laughs> You know what? I am um, all power to him, but I've been around long enough, just long enough, and so have you. He won't last. We've seen this. You know, there is a type who are big for about 10 years, and then they've done all that they have. I sense that in, in him. It's not going to be forever. He's not going to be 50 and 60 and still being taken as a guru. He's now. And it's going to be like that. I can think of several people since I've been doing this. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're thinking of Ta-Nehisi Coates. And the question in my mind is, what, what has ever happened to him? I haven't heard from him in a while. He's a good example. Or you can go further back. Toure. Remember when Toure was the big yeah, thing? Yeah, I do remember Toure. And Toure's brilliant, et cetera. But he's not now. And, you know, I don't have anything against Toure, but... There was a time when one might have thought he was on his way to becoming, you know, tippy-top black leftist public intellectual, and that that did not really happen. And we I, we don't need to tick off people like this because I'm not saying there's something wrong with it. But I get the feeling that that who we're talking about is not going to be Michael Eric Dyson, who you know always keeps on ticking. There are ones who kind of come and go, and I think that I get the feeling he's going to be one of those people. That's an interesting observation. It's a set of observations, actually, an invitation to survey the black public intellectual scene, you know, the three named people and what. Now, what about Melissa Harris Perry, you could say, or, you know, and then there are others that you could name that would, you know. You know, I didn't want to say uh, her. Because... And, what about, and, and what about the young Coleman Hughes looking in the other direction, sort of retrospectively looking forward? Do you think That's he has legs? You know, and I'm not asking you to answer that question because he's our friend and we don't want to dissect him in public. But no, uh, the question no. does. No, he's a, it's interesting you bring him up because uh, Melissa Harris Perry is also someone who I think was making a bigger noise 10 years ago than now. But it's easy to forget that she is now doing the takeaway on National Public Radio. I know. And she, she does a good job at it. Too, and she's really I good. So. I think she's Yeah, fantastic. she's very good at it. And so she's not... And it's a hard thing to do. You know, that, that kind of... Uh, I mean, I can tell you as host of The Glenn Show, I, I would not want the responsibilities of doing that NPR show. <laughs> you know, all the time. No, she's she is to the manner born on that show. And I think so she's she has held on. She's not the type who wants to write a book every two or three years. That's not what she does. But she's she's there. Oh, another one. Tavis Smiley. Big, big, big deal for a while. And now not. But Colin well, he Hughes. had a peccadillo. He had he had some stuff. He had know, a little of the me relationships too. on the job and stuff like that. And he also got on the wrong side of Obama, Tavis Smiley did. Yes, uh, that and, took care of know, him. That didn't, that didn't help when Obama that's, was president of the fucking I think that's United. what it, it mainly was that. Yeah, if he had not been against Obama, I think he, he might still, yeah. And as for Coleman, I'm not just saying this because he's part of our posse. I really believe that in 20 years, he will still be around because, frankly, he has a certain versatility. He's interested in a lot of things. 
I think he will be very open to watching the world change and adjusting to it instead of just saying the same thing over and over again. I think that Coleman with graying hair and, you know, on MSNBC having his own podcast, I can see it very easily because he frankly has a lot of arrows in his quiver. So, yeah, he'll last. Coleman, that's interesting. I agree. I agree with your, your forecast. We'll see. Time will tell. Let's hope mm-hmm. that I'm around to observe the trajectory oh, of the great Coleman Hughes. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it raises a question about, and, and I agree with your assessment. The reason I agree with your assessment, because I think he's got a really good head on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. He's got he a does. high IQ. He's smart. He's an intellectual. He reads. He reads books and he thinks it's about curious. it. It's an interesting thing to say about books. Mm-hmm. You know? So, Columbia I mean, he's trained got him his, well. He's got exactly. Oh, you can take pride mm-hmm. in that being a Columbia faculty <laughs> member. Uh, he's got this the thing that's coming up. Uh, what is he writing about? Colorblindness or something like that. I mean, he's got a book contract and there will be a book. It'll be his God and man at Yale kind of statement, you know, yep. early in his career. Analogous yep. to the great William F. Buckley. That is a good uh, analogy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what he needs is a regular platform. He has his podcast, uh, conversations with Coleman, and and he has his music uh, 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 enterprises and whatnot. Uh, you know, a place where he was uh, regularly sounding off in a reflective way about the issues of the day. And you know, mm-hmm. uh, I agree. I'm, I'm bullish he, on it. I I I don't expect to see him him fade. But yeah, it's been interesting to me to see the ones who who were the ones to beat in, say, 2003, and then what's, what's happened since. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm gloating or anything like that. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> yes, you, you are. Know. <laughs> well, uh-uh. <laughs> no. I, it's, I think to myself, wow, that's the person who would have always been on the panel with or against me in, say, 2005. Haven't heard a word from them since. Wonder why. As opposed to you, you know, you and I were did things back in the early 2000s, and here we are now. You know, and what's what's the difference? And I think part of it is that you and I have kind of a niche market. You know, it's just there are only so many people who take our positions, and so it's harder. You know, it's easier to stay around because we're dependables. But so I'm not gloating. But in terms of who the people, especially on the other side, are, it's interesting. Just what who who, who lasts and who doesn't. Ishmael Reed, for example, early 2000s, he wrote some books. He was on TV a lot. He was on the radio oh, a lot. He was beating up on me. I like him. I like him. I, mean, I, I think he's a great novelist. He may be, but he would not like your positions on race. And if you two ever appeared on a show together, he would be gratuitously abusive as he was towards now, me. Back I then. corresponded with Ishri uh, back in the day, <laughs> 25 mm. years ago. He thought I was interesting. I mean, I'm sure you were right. He disagreed. He was in Oakland, as I recall, and was very integrated into the local activist scene, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, I mean, I like Reckless Eyeballing. That's that's his novel that I, I really, really admire. But there was another one that I also that I also liked. I, I, I thought he was a Stanley Crouch era uh, black intellect. That is Ishmael Reed. I say was. I shouldn't use the past tense. Stanley has passed away, God rest his soul, but I assume Ishmael Reed is still with us. He is, yeah. And um, he's beginning to be lionized as the grand old man for his literary work. But no, I bear no hate. It was a long time ago, but he was, he was impossible towards me when I started. Told lies about me in public, on the radio, on Michael Eric Dyson's radio show, got into my family history, including my mother's... Um, my mother's slide into mental decline after the age of oh 15. no uh huh he was mean and oh no that's a, that's that's it was really it was belt. over the line way below the belt. Ishmael thought I was you know this interloper who didn't mean what I said and then after about oh six he stopped hearing from him in those settings and he's very much alive but you know people come and people go in playing that particular that particular role he has a book called. Another Day at the Front, I believe it's 2004. You can imagine what it's like. It's all full of typos. You can tell he wrote it very quickly and very angry. And it includes the lies about me. And I don't know, Glenn, I'm surprised you and him ever had anything to do with each other. He is. 
I well, think he, he thought I was interesting, and he, you know, he reached out with this kind of uh, correspondence. We, do we write like that anymore? I mean, I don't think we write like that anymore. Letters to people that you don't know about ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was a little bit like that. Uh, but I'm I'm sure he, <laughs> he thought I was a running dog. Uh, lackey of, you know, the racist white, you know, a sellout Uncle Tom, you know, whatever. Yeah, Adolf yeah. Reed also wasn't uh, very fond of me. <laughs> the way Adolf treated you is the way Ishmael treated me. Yeah, exactly. You know the story about Adolf. That you thing he said at that party. Yeah, where he to referred my daughter. To... Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and he referred to your past. Part of the mystery family. Right, right. <laughs> No, that's that's unspeakable. That's that sort of but, stuff. Uh, anyway, I'm you know what I really that. like is that um, you know how some of the feedback we get implies that we're the ones who start that stuff. You know, there are people who think, for example, that we started jumping all over people like Coates and Kendi when they don't realize that in both Coates and Kendi's case, they started it. They're the ones who you know come out they started it. <laughs> Kendi has called me an embarrassment on Twitter not too terribly long ago. But people seem to think that we're just these these nasty guys who, you know, are punching and saying all these terrible things. I don't think a lot of people realize how mean, frankly, everybody can be. Like Coates, for example. I've noticed that a lot of people in the business, um, a lot of white men in the business in particular, think of him as this courtly gentleman. And they have no idea of the way Coates wrote about me very often, long before I said anything about him. They really don't know. And they can't imagine it. They can't imagine that that sort of thing would ever have come from Coates. And now we're just talking about blog posts in The Atlantic that nobody reads anymore. They have no idea. It's interesting to me. And so they're always surprised when I don't jump out of my seat and praise Coates. But I think about all the names he called me and all that stuff. A lot of people don't know about this shit that goes on between a lot of us that doesn't make it into the pages of Harper's or something like that. Just something I've always been struck by. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just turned my memoir manuscript into the publishing. We're going back and forth now. And uh, you know how it works and I'm very excited about it and whatnot, but I have given so much ammunition to, <laughs> to my enemies and detractors. <laughs> the reviews, the reviews, Glenn. Wow. And now everybody and their mother can do a review. On the chopping block, <laughs> do you um do you criticize any people? Do you do you jump any people, or do you avoid doing that? No, I I, I don't. Think it's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been around so long. I've been around so long that mm. you know the contemporary argument is only a small part of the overall. You know, you talk so, about the Thurnstroms. Yeah, I do. I do. I There's thinking. a whole theme, which I'm not supposed to talk about because I'm not supposed to talk about the memoir. There's this whole theme. However, I will say this much to whet people's appetite many months in advance because production is a long process. Uh, a regret. You hmm. know, uh, because betrayal is a theme. That is hmm. me betraying people who trust me and love me like my wife, like my church, Uh, like my political friends when I go left, right, left, right, and flip-flopping, and then, you know, people are are strained. And, you know, uh, the metaphorical story for this, I'll say this much, please forgive me, Mr. Publisher, for talking at all about this thing, is I'm at a Black uh, Power rally in the uh, late 60s, and I'm with a friend who looks like he's a white guy, and they kind of try to throw him out of the meeting. And I don't stand up for him, you know, because I'm afraid of being on the outs with the Coke no Sinti, with the, with the black rah-rah, you know, this kind of thing. And I think something like that happened to me in the 90s when I left my conservative moorings and veered left, that I was really, you know, at a, in a, different way, trying to appeal to the Covenant I was trying to get the brothers to pat me on the back. I was trying to come home. You can't go home. You can't go home, you know, and I wanted the comfort, the warmth of, of this kind of uh, uh, unquestioned, you know, embrace of the folk. 
and uh, the conflict between that and the sense of integrity, of intellectual integrity, of courage, of vision, you know, stick with it, you know, because <laughs> when I read some of my essays from the 1980s, John, <laughs> when you were in college or whatever, <laughs> I say that, God damn it, that guy was right. Why did he just stick to his guns? <laughs> And I know why I didn't stick to my guns. I, I, I choked. I lost my nerve. I, I you know, I veered away why? from the thing. Yeah. What, 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 made, what made you choke? What, was it one thing? It's a good question. <laughs> uh, it was not one thing. You know, it was my uncle telling me that he didn't, you know, we could only send one. We sent you. We don't see us in anything you do. You know, this is my mother's brother. You know, he's in his late 70s now. You know, he's the patriarch. Uh, Because I'm kind of estranged from the from the thing. Uh, It's the shame of, you know, coming out of this. uh, Terrible period in my life, you know, of scandal and whatnot. And I, I kind of was a flawed being. I mean, I, I you know, I, I wasn't confident within myself that I had standing with people. You know, I wanted, I needed rehabilitation. Uh, I don't know. Um, anyway, you know, that's, that's not for us to resolve here. <laughs> but Shelby Steele. Shelby Steele once said to me, and it was in front of a lot of other people. And so I don't, I don't think I'm telling Ailes out of school. He said this to me in 2001. Um, it was at a meeting, actually, that unfortunately didn't lead to anything. It was a lunch between him, me, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, and Larry Elder. We had lunch in, in Palo Alto. Wow, the idea that was, was his story. That was his story. It, it was meant to be the beginning of something, but... Nothing begins. Thomas Sowell, Larry Elder, Shelby Steele, John McWhorter. They, they, that's a conservative All thing. They were, were they trying to recruit you somehow? Yeah. Um, I was honored to be included. Um, I think Thomas Sowell called it, and I was in the area then. And um, uh-huh. 2001. It didn't really take. Like, I think Tom was trying to reanimate the, um, the movement that he had started in the early 1980s. Right. You, you, you were there, you know, and um, it didn't take. And I found myself thinking it's interesting to go against this orthodoxy that, for example, you were moved to try to rejoin for a bit. The power of that orthodoxy is such to go against it. You have to be somebody who really marches to your own beat. And maybe you're too much of a one man band to join gracefully together with other people. I felt like we were five individuals in the room, but there was not the group feeling that there needed to be somehow. It just, it didn't, it didn't take, or maybe it was just the wrong five people. But Shelby said something to me that really struck. I was kind of disappointed. I was sympathetic. I was struck. He said that at some point in his trajectory, after his book, The Content of Our Character, he had started to question himself. He had started to wonder whether he was just wrong because of the volume of the criticism against him. And then he snapped back. But I remember thinking, wow, is it that bad? You know, and I had only been doing it for a couple of years at the time. But I thought, are they going to hit you so hard that you start doubting yourself? So I, I know what you mean about that. You want the warmth back. Yeah, and I know what you mean. And I probably make some compromises in that direction myself. There are things I don't say. There are things that I say more gingerly than I might really feel. I don't, I, I don't think I'm going to undergo any great transformations. But yeah, you can't help but feel kind of lonely sometimes. But um, it's, it's interesting that people go through that. It occurs to me, I say this, and she's no longer around to hear it, Abigail Thurston, that she actually saw what was happening to me in the 90s, which was that I was losing my my nerve and the the courage of my conviction, saw the tragedy in that because my voice, you know, meant something. And uh, that her, her sense of injury wasn't only the fact that I wrote a negative review of their book, but it was a, a deeper disappointment 
in the loss, as she might have put it. You know, Norman Pothorid said something like this to me, too. This is the longtime editor of Commentary Magazine, publisher. Um, yeah, because I used to talk about the loyalty trap. You know, you feel loyal to the race, and so you don't say what you think in critical observation about what's going on with the race. And he says, I didn't just fall into it. I leaped with both feet into the loyalty trap. <laughs> And I just poo-pooed that. I just blew that off. I said, oh, that's just sour grapes, man. You know, you just, you know, I'm, I'm no longer your, your boy. I, you know, I'm no longer on the reservation. I'm no longer your reliable, conservative Black voice to back your play. And you're just, you're just mad about, about that. But you might have had a point on it, you know. I went through some of that with Abby, actually. Um, she was one of the very, very first people when I wrote my first quote-unquote, contrarian piece about race, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal. The Times took it, but then destroyed it, completely changed everything I was saying. It didn't sound anything like me, and then, and then spiked it, which at the time was very disappointing because I hadn't been through that sort of thing yet. Then Sam Tannenhaus was nice enough to get it taken up by the Wall Street Journal. I owe a lot of my career just to that move that he made. And it appeared. I honestly now don't remember what I said, but Abby was one of the first people who wrote me, and she kind of welcomed me into the fold. And early on, she said, don't be afraid to be a Republican. You'll have lots of friends in, in, the, in the party who will embrace you. There are many people like us, lapsed liberals, you know, you you are a Republican at heart. Don't be afraid to do And I never did that. And more to the point, I started, you know, criticizing some of the excesses of the right-wing take on race by the mid-aughts. And Abby and I never had any kind of falling out, but it had, it had been. I had Abby and Steve over to dinner at my place back then. I invited them to my wedding um, back then. They couldn't make wow. it, but I they were people who I would have invited, who I would have had there. Lovely. But, But then it may have been part of the reason they weren't at the wedding was that Abby and probably both of them were getting kind of disappointed in me because I wasn't going to be a movement Republican conservative writer. And I don't think they were angry with me, but we drifted into not knowing each other. I didn't know about Abby's passing until maybe a year afterward, for example. And so, yeah. I, I don't think it was an accident that we never we didn't know each other anymore, except that, you know, on Facebook. And I think it was partly that I think she felt that I didn't have the courage of my convictions or maybe I just outright disappointed her. She thought something of me that wasn't true. But, yeah, yeah, that can that that can happen. And she wasn't the only one like that. Stephen Canfer, there were a few of the lapsed white liberals who, who especially cut me off after Obama when I liked Obama. A lot of that crowd decided, fuck him, I noticed. And, you know, fine, I've got plenty of friends, but yeah, that happened. They were expecting something of me that turned out not to be true, and they really, they really didn't like it. Oh, well. You're content where you have landed, are you? Quite, quite, yeah. Because I say what I feel. And yet a critical mass of people on the left know that I'm not crazy. I am very happy with this place. I now know that anybody who thinks of me as, you know, a shill for the right wing who does a hairpin turn when they see me at the farmer's market so they can make fun of me with their friends on the phone. Anybody who thinks that of me, 90 percent, it is 90 percent likely that they don't know my work very well. You know, I know I don't deserve that. And yeah, I got to ask you a question, Jeff. Sure. So sometimes I wonder if you aren't, and forgive me, please, mm-hmm. virtue signaling to the left mm-hmm. that I'm not really that guy, that guy being this uh, Larry Elder kind of arch conservative type, even though mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to take the following position. So, for example, when you agreed with DeSantis that the AP Afro course was over the top in terms of mm-hmm. propaganda, you had to point out. I would never vote for DeSantis. Nobody asked you whether or not you're going to vote for him. You know, we were talking about Afro-Am. Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. 
when you agreed with the, what you anticipate the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do in this affirmative action case, because, you know, we are just out of you, University of North Carolina, which is one of the plan, uh, defendants in the case forum at their university talking about affirmative action. You were very strident in pointing out that you thought there was time for a change. You had to point out that you loathe the current U.S. Supreme Court. And when you did those things, I couldn't help but think. The brother is trying to soften the blow by reassuring the audience that he's he's reliably, uh, you know, a New York liberal <laughs> on, on certain things, even though he's off the reservation on this one. Am I wrong hmm. about that? No, I hear you. It's not quite what you're thinking. It's, um, I do do that. Yeah. I could not have had that conversation about affirmative action without making it very clear that I'm very disappointed with the direction the current Supreme Court has taken. But I am. I genuinely am. The reason I make sure to say those things, though, Glenn, is because a critical mass of people out there are set to make a bunch of assumptions about you if you have one position, and this is because it's natural for human beings to generalize. And for a lot of them, especially with my snotty talking self, if I sit there and say I am not in favor of continuing racial preferences in university admissions, there are a lot of very sensible people out there who will think he's a Republican conservative. Those are his positions. And this is the problem. If they think that, although it's not fair, I mean, the Republicans don't make a great case for themselves lately in particular, but it's not fair that they think if he's a Republican conservative, I won't listen. But they will think it. It's not right and it's not fair, but they will. And I want them to listen to me. And if I don't say I don't like the current Supreme Court, I would lose two thirds of that room we were in because they'll just think he's a Republican conservative. He's Clarence Thomas. Why should you listen to him? I have to deal with the world as it exists. So I'm not virtue signaling. These are my real views. I really wouldn't vote for DeSantis. But the question is, why do I have to put that in? And it's because a lot of times readers are poised to think that anybody who disagrees with A, B, C, or D is somebody who would wear a MAGA hat. I, that's the world that I live in. So, yeah. That's what you think they think of me? You think they think I'm a MAGA? Frankly, at this point, I think many people do think that of you, and maybe you don't mind. But what worries me is that it limits how many people are going to listen. I want these people to listen. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, 
Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro-habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, what I think is I would rather not be thought of as a MAGA because I know that that's a very, very negative characterization. That's a, you know, how can somebody think and be that? That's a Trump supporting, you know, white supremacist kind of insurrectionist kind of self-hating, whatever. And I'm an, I am, you know, I could give my resume, but everybody knows my resume. I'm I'm not that. I'm, I'm a sophisticated intellectual at the top of a technical field of discipline with a half century's worth of, you know, professional achievement to, to point to, uh, member of all the societies and, you know, all the accolades and, you know, go to Google Scholar and look at the citations of my many, many scholarly articles and whatnot, as well as of a certain kind of public intellectual presence. And I'll stop talking about myself. I mean, because I'm an estimable figure. I'm, I'm an important voice. I'm, I'm not a nut. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> you know, you constitutional law, how do you interpret the Constitution? Is there a right in the penumbra of the Constitution for every latter-day cultural evolution of sexuality and identity? And I think that's an argument. I think that's a legitimate argument. Um, Would I have it that there were uh, the opposite of the uh, conservative court now on liberals making the law for the country? No, I wouldn't have it that way. I can live with the current Supreme Court. We can debate that. We can make that the subject of another conversation. Do I think the Democrats have the best of it on the policy front? No, frankly, I don't. I don't. Um, And we could go down the list, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy, uh, whether it's federal government or local government. uh, I think there's a lot to be said for the Republican position on these various issues. And, you know, that doesn't make me a MAGA. Do I think that uh, what happened to Trump between 2016 and 2020 should terrify everybody? Because even though uh, he is not somebody who I would fall on my sword for, the effort to reverse the consequences of the 2016 election terrify me uh, for the future of my country and make me aware of the fact that institutions that I had relied upon, like the press, uh, couldn't be uh, trusted to administer their portfolio in, in a, a professionally responsible way, crazed as it was by their uh, hatred of the guy who won the 2016 election, et cetera. We could go down the list of those things you and I had seen before, but, you know, <laughs> um, my main beat of late has been race, race, racial inequality. Okay. Since, uh, what was it? Uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, February of 2012, Eric Gardner, July of 2014, Michael Brown, August of 2014, Tamir Rice, November of 2014, all the way up to George Floyd, May of 2020. And uh, the uh, racial reckoning and the rise of this, uh, uh, you know, anti-racist sensibility that you have skewered so brilliantly in your book, Woke Racism. I'm on the right side of history in that argument. I am on the right side of the uh, well-being of our country in that argument. 
So I'm sorry for going on so long about moi, but by way of saying I'm extremely comfortable uh, in my uh, political stance and, you know, the fact that it might line up with Ron DeSantis from time to time or uh, Christopher Rufo, for that matter, or uh, Heather McDonald, for that matter. It doesn't bother me in the least. Yeah, I am. I maybe I concern myself too much with the hairs out of place. You know, there are always going to be people who misinterpret you. I mean, frankly, you should be flattered because it means that you're getting a certain amount of attention. But, um, yeah, and one thing I've always noticed is that you're only as good as what you did two weeks ago. I always <laughs> notice that there are people who you can tell they kind of think I've only been writing about race for four or five years as opposed to what's going on 25. And so, you know, there, there are times when I think people only know me so well. I can't, I can't assume that they know that I've been writing for this long. And then there's, there's just the crazy stuff. And so one time I took my, you know, once, you know, I look at Twitter two or three times a day. And I took a look and some people were discussing the fact that I don't like trans people and that I had joined the anti-trans brigade. And I was wondering, what in the world is this? And it turns out that... Because I signed the Harper's letter, and so did J.K. Rowling, who is on oh, the wow. for that. So that means that I, well, for one thing, I don't think that she can be coherently accused of being anti-trans. But if you think that of her, well, because I signed that, then I don't like trans people either. And here are these people having this whole discussion about me having a problem with them. Oh, I'm so disappointed to hear that. You know, wouldn't you know it? Blah, blah, blah. Now, that's wow. one little thing. But that's what I mean by... We can't be sure that people out there won't make these assumptions based on one or two things that you say. So I try to make it very clear to this sort of New York Times reading person. I am one of you. Yes, I do need to say it because I'm going to say it's time for racial preferences to end. But no, that doesn't mean that me and Armstrong Williams think the same way as you are almost certainly thinking, unless I make it clear that I do not like the current Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I feel like I want I need to say it. People only know so much about so many people. Here's the thing, John. I mean, you have been very careful to not talk. I mean, can I say this much? In our internal discussions about what we will and will not talk about at the Glenn Show, the trans issue is one of the things that you have decidedly moved to not talk about. So you made an effort. Exactly. So people don't actually know what you think about the trans issue because you're not uh, you're not willing to discuss it in public. And it's fine. I'm fine with that. I'm not trying to, you know, criticize that position at all. But they still are going to fill in the blank. (laughs) And and here's the thing. The thing is, the thing is, Leah Thomas is a trans woman swimming competitively at the University of Pennsylvania in their uh, swim competition and breaking records left and right in the women's swimming. There's a real issue whether that's okay. People can be on either side of that issue and not a single one of them has anything against trans people. You can be on the other side of that issue without hating trans people or being transphobic. And that's the thing. The the, the thing is, if you don't agree with them about disputable and arguable on the evidence and the facts questions, they assume that you're a bad person. Yeah. That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. And when they make their noise, the powers that be are so afraid of them that your life may be ruined. <laughs> and so, yes, people can fill in any number of blanks they want. I am not anti-trans. I, I will say that in any sense. But what you just described, I have seen, I've noticed it, I've seen it have consequences for people, and I live in a world, and there are limits to the bravery people praise me for. I have a life to lead. So you have to pick your battles, and um, I'm not joining that one. I'm too busy being hated for my views about race. You're brave. I'm not sure people are tuned in to hear us. reflect on our navels here, which we've been doing to a certain extent, but we can get away with this one time. Yeah. Yeah. But we could, we still got Scott Adams to discuss the cartoonist, the Dilbert uh, creator cartoonist who has been canceled 
his publisher of this forthcoming book has dropped the book. His, I mean, or his agent has dropped the agency relationship. The newspaper's carrying is like the New York, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the Washington Post and the L.A. Times and others, and USA Today and others who carry a strip have decided to drop the strip. Why? Let me see if I recall, because he saw the results of a poll, uh, I think Rasmussen, that asked the question, is it okay to be white, to which like 47% of the black respondents said either no, it's not okay, or they weren't sure that it was okay to be white. And he says there's, you know, he characterized African-Americans en masse as a hate group and said that he had once tried to be nice and be a part of the, you know, help black people brigade, but he has since decided that he was going to get as far away from black people and have nothing, as little to do with them as possible. And he recommended that this is a paraphrase, not a quote to uh, other white people as well, get away from black people. So he's a racist uh, by many reactions, including your colleague at the New York times, Charles Blow, who's written about this, but others have as well. Uh, and uh, is getting his uh, just dessert uh, or not. Uh, any, what's your, what's your commentary on this whole, on this whole brouhaha? Well, um, I'm going to be very honest. I, I'm an armchair person. I'm a Montessori-trained nerd. And I don't know much about money and business. The idea here seems to be that all of those entities need to cut their ties with Adams because it would be bad for business to be associated with somebody who has expressed racist views. Now, you can hair split as to whether what he said was racist or not, but to the extent that he's basically saying, screw these people's concerns, and essentially saying, I don't like them, and he's applying it to a group. Yes, this is racism. The case here is not whether or not he is he has said something racist, or I don't think it's a very interesting discussion, but the idea is that every newspaper has to drop him because it'd be bad for business. Is it that they fear that a significant number of subscribers would drop the paper if they continued to see Dilbert in it? Is that, is that the idea? Or is it that they feel that as moral representatives in yeah. society, they have, to, they have to cut ties with Adams for that reason? Which one is it? Okay, I'm not sure I caught everything because of a bandwidth uh, issue that we have here. You drew a contrast between two different reasons why people might want to, papers might want to drop him. Yeah. Um, is, it the, is it money I'm say, or is it morals? And I guess the answer is both. Well, okay. I, I think it's money. I think the money turns on what is assumed about the morals of the person who doesn't drop. Mm-hmm. I think once this thing gets going, um, there's a sanctioned movement that gets going. Your decision to join it or not join it becomes a statement about whether or not you affirm the value that the movement is meant to express. In this case, anti-racism. He said some things that are arguably racist. I, I would argue, actually, that uh, you know, uh, they're mild compared to a lot of things that are said about white people on a daily basis by black people. <laughs> You know, but whites so, are in power, right? You know, yeah, yeah. I don't want to parse the question of what is and isn't racist. I'll, I'll stipulate mm-hmm. that it's racist for for many people. It's racist, and that's not what I think is important. Um, uh, I think once papers start dropping, the question of why did you not drop him becomes one that a lot of organizations don't want to have to answer, and the reason is money. The reason is they'll lose readership. They'll they'll uh, weaken their position in the marketplace. Uh, I don't think corporations have morals. You know, they say the values are institutional values. You know, okay, whatever. It's all made up. Uh, I know universities shouldn't have beyond the value of uh, pursuing knowledge and uh, open inquiry and discourse shouldn't have substantive political values on questions that are arguable. I think that's contrary to the spirit of the university. And it, 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 presumes the answer to the questions that the university is meant to investigate. But um, universities are special institutions. Um, I I think the canceling response to a a disquieting intervention, such as Scott Adams' intervention was, oh, that's what he thinks about Black people. I wonder how many white people think that about Black people. 
get as far away from them as you can. Oh, wow. That's promoting segregation. Charles Bull makes a big deal out of this, you know, resegregation of America point. You know, that's supposed to be anti-Black. Um, I think a lot of people think it. Oh, yeah. That, that's why it becomes all the more important to cancel him. <laughs> they, you know, otherwise there's a thing that's trying to get out and they're trying to keep the, the, the lid on it. They're, they're trying to prevent it from breaking free. Um, and, and that's why I so lament the racialization of the, uh, the crime and policing uh, uh, discussion because uh, I think it has a, a, a dark side as well as this uh, supposedly progressive side. They make a big deal out of the fact that it's a white police officer who abuses a black uh, a citizen. Uh, and uh, the dark side is that they're black criminals who are preying on white people on a daily basis, lots of them. Uh, and uh, the, the, why would you get away from Chicago or Baltimore? or certain parts of Atlanta, or St. Louis, or New Orleans, Detroit. Why, why would you not want to live in that city? <laughs> because black criminals make living there dangerous. Period. Carjackers, robbers, rapists, murderers. So that's the ugly, dark side of a racialized discourse about crime, punishment, and policing in this country. The flip side of mass incarceration is racist, is that too many Black people are breaking the law. Um, so that, that's the unspeakable, uh, a terrifying specter that haunts uh, comments such as those that Scott Adams made. And it's the reason why he must be canceled, because otherwise we'd have to actually contemplate and deal with the fact that there's a real motivation. Not his bad racist morality, like he's some kind of witch. He's a tip of an iceberg. You'd rather cancel him than actually talk about what he's talking about. What I think. Yeah. Yeah. All of that is true. There's a part of me that can't completely wrap my head around this idea that, you know, people are thinking it, but they're not supposed to say it. I guess the idea is if they say it, it'll encourage more people to say it. And it'll also encourage more people to think it, I guess. And so you want to keep a lid on this. And you're saying that the fact is that people might be thinking that for actual reasons that are difficult to call this naked and unreasoning bias against a group of people because they're different. And I agree with you on that, too. Um, Adams is responding to the idea that, you know, practically half of black people apparently think it's not OK to be white. And I think... In this, he's kind of willfully disregarding a certain aspect of nuance. First of all, that there's, there, there are power relations involved. Second, you can say that without meaning that you're going to actively oppose white people or get in their way or try to hurt them. That it's a, it's a philosophical position about what we call whiteness today. And there's also a history of that whole issue of is it okay to be white that he's completely ignoring. It's a, it's a set phrase. I don't know what was going through his head. I mean, talk about the livelihood he lost. We can assume that he's a millionaire many times over, and so he's not putting himself in any kind of danger. So he clearly right. just, you know, tipped and decided to say, say something honest because he needed to. But there's a part of me that cannot get past the sense that are we this delicate? Is the idea that they're trying to ward off a race war? Are they afraid that... You know, less temperate people than him are going to rise up and start you know, doing Dylan Roof type things. Maybe that makes a certain kind of sense. Or, but I don't think that's what people are thinking. What people are thinking is this is wrong. We, we don't do this. He must be excommunicated. 
And a part of me feels like, are we that delicate? And I'm thinking, well, somebody would say, what, you have to think about what happened in Buffalo at the supermarket. But I'm not sure that's what people are thinking. It's just they're thinking about our feelings. And I don't know if I want to be catered to to that extent. So we can't read his comic strip anymore because he said something that hurts our feelings. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't quite get it. I think Dilbert is funny. I've got a few Dilbert books. I used to read Dilbert every day. I used to read Dilbert in a couple of other languages to keep my languages in trim because it's clever language. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna abjure Dilbert. I don't care how the person who draws it and scripts it feels about black people. I can separate those two things. The strip has nothing to do with race or apparently the characters made some comments about reparations or something at some point. I miss those. I don't read the strip anymore, but I don't care. This is the whole issue about the artist versus the, 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 the creation. Yeah. I haven't written about this and I'm not going to because I, um, I think we all have bigger fish to fry, but are we so delicate? And that's, that's, that was my first thought. Like, why are they doing this to him? But maybe there's an argument that he has to be tamped in order to discourage there being anti-black violence. I could open my head to that, that view. But I'm, I worry that that's not really what's going on here. You think it's about guns? You think it's about a, 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 an uprising of mostly rural white men? You know, this militia that we hear is always in training and always just underneath. Is that why Scott Adams can't say that? I, I can see the link that a person of a certain uh, anti-racist sensibility might draw in justifying the condemnation of Scott Adams by saying that it feeds into a certain narrative or set of narratives about race, which in their most extreme version uh, culminate in, um, you know, Proud Boys and, you know, Militias right. and right. Kind of, I can see that. Uh, I mean, you raise a couple of points. You you say you think it's people's real feelings that of a sense that this is wrong and not necessarily a strategic calculation about we have to keep it quiet. They they're they're offended and they think it's wrong and and they're genuinely disturbed by it at a moral level. Um. And you say that, therefore, the cancellation movement to a certain degree is a respect for that sensibility. And it assumes a kind of vulnerability or, you know, you, you, fragility uh, on, the, on the part of the, of the anti-racist, of the Black uh, reactor. Uh, and you wonder why they think we're so delicate that we can't bear to hear um, certain sentiments expressed. Um, so, and that, and that's why we have to cancel him. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I guess I've said what I think. I, I, I think the discourse is dishonest that, that the, um, uh, and it's, it, it is, there's an acceptable register within which white people are supposed to talk about race relations. And when Scott Adams says, there's no fixing this, that was another one of his quotes. There's no fixing this. White people, my advice to you is get as far away from black people. There's no fixing. This is almost like, is it Marjorie Taylor Greene, the one who's calling for a national divorce of uh, you know, red and blue? He's saying, let's, you know, have a national divorce of black and white. I used to try to help black people, but by, believe me, this is a waste of my time. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what's the race policy of the Biden administration? It, it is four square DEI. They just issued an executive order that uh, DEIifies the entire federal bureaucracy, every department, every you know, office is going to have to have a whole structure and there's a whole protocol and whatnot like that. You know, the president ran saying that he was going to have a black woman be vice president. The Democratic Party politics now is if Biden is too old, Kamala Harris is too frail a political person to be the leader. Have, you don't watch the Sunday show. So I like to watch Donna Brazil and um, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, 
Christy Todd Whitman. Uh, Chris, Chris, Christy Todd Whitman. Yeah. No, 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 no. The guy. Oh, Chris, uh, Chris Christie. Chris Christie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, go at it on the ABC. This this uh, the uh, uh, Sunday show. And one of the things that they've been going at it recently is he says uh, Biden is too old, and he says uh, and nobody wants Kamala Harris to be the presidential, be president or to be the candidate for Democrat Party for president. And Don is saying, don't you be dissing Kamala? Don't you be dissing Kamala? And they go back and forth about it. But it's all about race. It's it's all it's all about race. Uh, Obama was all about race. Uh, 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 Supreme Court appointments and so forth. I mean, it's so, so there's a way of talking about it. There's a way of, you know, what a decent, respect, self-respecting, uh, honorable person is supposed to say. And uh, Scott Adams flies in the face of that. So, I think, yeah, uh, it's... I um, think that, that, that conventional conversation is like a cover for the thing that's really going down, going on down underneath, which the Scott Adams comment... Uh, touches on, it delves into, draws on. It draws on something that's down underneath. And uh, that's the thing that I think is, uh, that, we, that we really need to try to understand better. Yeah, for example, um, Donna Brazil, I have you know always been a fan. No, that's not virtue signaling, I mean it. And yet her column in the Times this week was one of the weakest things I've ever seen her write because she basically just listed what Kamala Harris has done without addressing the issue of whether she's done it well. And I'm agnostic on that question. I'm not a Kamala hater, but Donna didn't make a case. Basically what she was saying was black woman, hooray. And, and yes, people like Scott Adams see this sort of, this, this sense that black people are to be praised just by showing up and that we must always come out on top in the moral argument. But, you know, I have to say about Adams, Dilbert is a very clever, intelligent strip. It's layered humor. I'm surprised that Scott Adams, and even, given public comments he's made about all sorts of things, does he really not understand that that question is about white guilt, whether or not white people should, in an existential sense, feel that their being white is a burden? Now, there are many arguments you can make about that. I think the whole white guilt thing is vastly overplayed. But nevertheless, can't he see that if somebody says it's not okay to be white, what they almost certainly mean in the context of today's conversation is a white person should feel that they are inherently a part of a historical tragedy against black people and they should think about it. Now, whatever the thinking about it is, but that's a very mainstream, ordinary position that the gentlest person could have with no intention of thinking that Scott Adams is a bad person because he's white or wanting to rise up against whiteness. Does Scott Adams really not understand that? And it seems to me that for him to take it in that way as somebody who I'm sure reads the news and is clearly somebody who can think on many levels, Dilbert is funny, is that he's impatient. It seems to me that something has tipped him, that he's sick of the nature of this dialogue. And in that, I'm not condoning what he said, but in that, maybe we are seeing a certain impatience. I mean, we can be quite sure that he has been praised well, well, John, lavishly um, by just as many people as he's we been condemned by. Certainly uh, people are writing in and saying, yes, uh, you were Scott speaking Adams truth, brother. Has been yeah. a big Trump supporter. And I just get the uh, feeling clearly sure something has made him very, very upset. Uh, in, in any way closely, but I have the impression that oh, over the preceding period of time, he's had a number of different public statements, which are very MAGA friendly. Okay. So, uh, I suspect that he may see what you are talking about, but not give a damn. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just, it was, but you say he's smart and you say that Dilbert is interesting and, and, and can you Dilbert, characterize, I mean, was it wry? Is it, uh, is it ironic? Is it, it's wry, know? sarcastic humor, very, um, economical because there are, there's only so much room that you have in the little box for dialogue. It's a very spare, sarcastic, intelligent little strip. I will openly say that it's been one of my favorite comic strips for a good quarter century. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. And you assume that the person who writes it can 
you know, hold two thoughts in their head at a time and understand context. And the things that Adams was saying sound almost like somebody of very advanced age who's kind of losing their grip on things, but he's not. And so I don't, it's sad, it's weird, it's rather appalling. But then again, the censure of him, I think we both sense it as based on some less than pure and partly performative sentiments. I wonder if he hadn't been spewing pro-Trump propaganda, quote unquote, for, you know, the last many months, if the reaction to him would have been as severe. I, I don't know, but one could ask the question. Maybe. Well, John, I think we can call it a day's labor. Uh, we've had our conversation and have covered a lot of ground. Indeed. I appreciate your time. Look forward to talking with you again in a couple of weeks. No problem. No problem. I will be Bye. here. Take care. Have a good one.